with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's program, we'll talk about 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's returning to the motherland. What is Hong Kong's role in connecting China and the global markets? And we will also take a look at the G7 600 billion US dollars infrastructure plan. And now let's begin with our top story. Hong Kong celebrated its 25th anniversary of returning to the motherland on July the 1st. Hong Kong has remained one of the world's freest economies and has been a major international financial hub. The city is now integrating further with the mainland economy through the Greater Bay Area, which includes 11 cities centered on technology, innovation, and high-end manufacturing. So, what is Hong Kong's role in connecting China to the global markets, and what is unique about Hong Kong as an international financial hub? For more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. So, let's start with the pillar industry of Hong Kong: its financial service industry. So, Shujie, if we take a look back in 1990. That only contributed around 10% to the city's GDP. And in 2020, for the latest numbers available, the financial service industry contributed around 23% to the city's GDP. So we know that Hong Kong is a major international financial center. But what sets Hong Kong apart from other international financial centers, and what's unique about Hong Kong? The most difference from uh, of Hong Kong from the rest of the world in terms of financial services is that not only Hong Kong have a long history of financial services, a fairly well established uh, financial service industry, uh, infrastructure, uh, regulation and law, and also、uh, the openness of the island economy, but also because after joining joining、uh, the, you know China、uh, the mainland. Actually, have、uh, the economy have been expanding rapidly over the last quarter century, so they provide a huge opportunity、uh, for the Hong Kong financial industry to increase the scale operation and also、uh, the background of of the of mainland、uh, have provided a strong solid foundation for continuous growth.、Mm. That's one thing. The, the other thing is the competitive advantage. Uh, mainland is more focused on manufacturing and the financial service industry, particularly in the early stage of the development, is lagging behind Hong Kong. So that Hong Kong take advantage of this opportunity to exploit the competitive advantage of providing financial services not only to the rest of the world but also for the expanding、uh, mainland economy. Mm. So then, when we talk about the financial industry, actually, you are working with the Hansen Bank. So, talk about、uh, you know more about the bond market. Is bond market very important, but maybe a little bit less under the spotlight compared to the equity markets in Hong Kong? So, how would you evaluate the overall development of Hong Kong's bond market and the capacity of the city to arrange the issuance of these bonds? 
Well, in fact, for anyone working in the banking industry, the bond market in Hong Kong and equity market in Hong Kong, uh, particularly the stock exchange, uh, are equally important, uh, especially when it comes to the mainland uh, companies issuing overseas debt uh, in dollars or in uh, euro. They would usually use Hong Kong as a base. Uh, Hong Kong's proximity to mainland and its understanding of how the Chinese economy works uh, help the mainland firms to successfully raise funds in the international market. And this role has been strengthened in the past 20 years. Mm. And then, so in terms of the structural drivers that will further develop Hong Kong's bond market, one is the bond connect, and that is for sure the number one. But uh, what I also find quite interesting, Hong Kong's really accelerating the status as a regional green finance hub. So how do you view these two structural drivers propelling the city's bond market forward? Uh, the green finance, uh, is a special feature and also a uh, frontline product, actually, uh, for Hong Kong's bond market um, because it has the right kind of talent uh, working in the Hong Kong's banking industry and other financial services in order to make those products uh, possible um, because it requires a set of standards um, that uh, depend on the experience of whoever's involved in uh, drawing up the rules and making um, the products more appealing to investors. And so far, uh, the green finance industry is still small, but it's increasing quite rapidly. Uh, many of the mainland firms also try to issue their first um, green bond in Hong Kong in order to gain more attention from the foreign investors. Mm. And Hong Kong's IPO market, the top IPO market for seven out of the last 13 years. And it has got a very strong pipeline of companies waiting to be listed in Hong Kong. So then how do you explain the main reasons of that? Well, Hong Kong's stock market has evolved tremendously in the past 15 years. And the one main driver was because of the fast development of the high-tech industry in mainland. Um, many of the firms would choose to get listed overseas. Uh, U.S. and Hong Kong are their top two destinations. And in the recent five years, Hong Kong has risen to be their top choices. And it sort of gives this kind of cluster effect for Hong Kong as a place uh, for tech IPOs. Mm-hmm. And we have seen some of the reforms in, for example, the dual listing and uh, uh, some other um, measures to facilitate mainland listing, uh, targeting uh, the tech industry. And that would gain Hong Kong more edge in the future to attract more tech firms. Mm. So, Shujie, we talk about, you know, the bond market, the equity market in Hong Kong, but Hong Kong as the largest offshore RMB hub, what does that mean in terms of the more innovative RMB products going forward? The RMB products, uh, I think there are many ways of uh, exploiting the law of RMB offshore. Uh, first of all, is the international trade settlement, bilateral settlement in particular. And secondly, I think RMB can be used uh, as a main currency for uh, issuing the bond that we have just discussed. I think the, the scale uh, initially was very small, but nowadays, as the RMB stability is very clear, 
uh, the, the dollar renminbi exchange rate has been very stable for many years. So uh, international investors have gained confidence not only in the in the Chinese currency, but also in the uh, you know the currency related bonds and equity uh, stock. So investors are now looking uh, in, into China, in Hong Kong, uh, in financial services, and also the equity market, uh, bond market as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, become, it's still a very important gateway, and this is the main reason for the resilience of the Hong Kong financial market uh, to the external uh, challenges and also competition. Mm. And besides an international financial center, Hong Kong is also a key international trade hub as well. So if we take a look at the imports, exports, wholesale trade, retail trades, so we add all that together, that contributes to around 18% of Hong Kong's GDP. So then how do you see the role of Hong Kong in the wider uh, Greater Bay Area in terms of promoting the regional trade and logistics efficiencies? Uh, well, at the peak, actually, those figures uh, that you mentioned used to contribute about 60% of Hong Kong's GDP um, because it was used as a transfer stop for China's trade on uh, targeting the European and American markets. And now Hong Kong's role as a financial hub is more important than its role as a transfer stop for trade. And we can see how finance dominates uh, almost every line of business. Uh, in Hong Kong's own regional plan for 2022 to 2026, uh, most of the policies are centering around the integration with the Greater Bay Area and developing its high-tech industries by providing talents, legal services, uh, insurance, and other financial type of services. And it's quite significant because that means uh, the policies will be supporting those efforts and more funding will be allocated to frontline uh, investments. Mm-hmm. And so, Shu we talk about the Greater Bay Area. It's officially called the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay Area, or GBA. And there is going to be a lot of synergies in the GBA. This 11 cities alone has a population that is greater than Germany. So what do you think are the synergies we see in the GBA that is going to be massive opportunities for Hong Kong? And what is Hong Kong's role in it. The integration of Hong Kong into the Great Bay Area uh, will continue to strengthen the, the position of Hong Kong as the financial hub and also the service hub, as we just mentioned. And um, I think the, the legal services and other uh, infrastructure in Hong Kong is also uh, comparatively ad- far more advanced compared to the uh, counterparts on, on the mainland. And the nine cities that we mentioned in, in, in Guangdong, they are the most dynamic and prosperous cities, uh, not, not only in Guangdong, but also for the whole uh, mainland as well. Now, these this cities, they are uh, strong in terms of manufacturing, uh, strong in terms of internal logistics, and especially the high-end manufacturing. Uh, these cities, combined with Hong Kong, they will export the so-called uh, uh, you know, industrial chain right from manufacturing, raw material supply uh, to import and export as well as uh, uh, up-to-sale services and financial services as well. Mm. And nowadays we're talking about also green development, also the green bond and the green equity market 
which also would be an important area uh, for Hong Kong to play by helping the counterpart city on, in Guangdong province to become more sustainable and high-quality economic growth for the Great Bay Area. Mm, another, so thing, yeah, another thing is the Great Bay Area will become a very important uh, tickler uh, for the mainland economy to drive the entire country uh, much more forward. So this is why Hong Kong is particularly important, uh, not only now, but also in the future. Mm, so, Dan, so what do you think is Hong Kong's role in this GBA? Well, Hong Kong's status as a regional base for global companies was always tied to mainland. Uh, and this relationship has become closer precisely because of this integration plan with the GBA. And we have seen that in the past 20 years, there were more foreign companies using Hong Kong as a base for their Asian or greater China operations. This number has been declining after 2010. But simultaneously, there were more companies from GBA area uh, setting up their regional headquarters in Hong Kong. And the number uh, suggests this reversing trend that more Chinese companies are going out of China, uh, setting up their global businesses, while uh, foreign companies are still staying there, targeting their mainland market. And so, Shujie, Hong Kong is sitting at the heart of the world's largest free trade agreement, the RCEP. That is going to bring a lot of trading opportunities for Hong Kong. And also the city proactively leveraging many opportunities from the Belt and Road Initiative. So tell us more specifically, what are the opportunities the RCEP and BRI can provide to Hong Kong? Well, first of all, we need to understand the, the RCEP, which basically include uh, China and, and the, the 10 member states, uh, Asia and, and Japan and, and South Korea. These countries are the most dynamic economy uh, growth area for uh, many decades and will continue to be so uh, for many years to come. So the, the, the importance of RCEP cannot be under, undermined in any way. And Hong Kong is sitting in the center connecting uh, you know, mainland and also the, the rest of the RCEP member, I think it is a very important position. In terms of the Bell and Law Initiative, it includes over 600 member states, sorry, 600 member states, and the number is increasing over time. But it, this, this country, most of them actually are relatively less uh, advanced in terms of economic development. But it also implies that this country has huge potential, particularly in terms of infrastructure, in terms of international trade and services. So Hong Kong, again, can play a very important in facilitating mainland, uh, the, uh, the mainland economy, to getting more integrated with the uh, low and, uh, you know, bail and low uh, initiative countries. So mm. these two uh, national strategies or initiatives are extremely important, and Hong Kong has taken the great opportunity here. Mm. And so, Dan, so what do you think are the opportunities that the RCEP and the BRI can provide for Hong Kong? Uh, I think the biggest opportunity is still with uh, how companies are going to finance their businesses. Um, because for BRI, for the longest time, uh, companies have to rely on dollar-denominated loans or other financial services but they depend on dollars. Um, but with Hong Kong as a transition center and as 
a front line for R&B internationalization. Uh, it could serve as a place we can pilot more uh, open measures um, in order to lower the capital control. Uh, it is a necessary step, and Hong Kong would be the best place for it. And in the near future, I can see more reforms in this front so that uh, uh, domestic companies and foreign companies can convert their funds in different currencies more easily. Mm. Well, then the uh, 14th five-year plan has also outlined the support for Hong Kong's development into an international innovation technology hub in its official uh, document. So how do you look at Hong Kong's potential sort of uh, fitting itself into this role? Well, Hong Kong posed as a special place uh, in China's 14th five-year plan. Because at the center of this plan, uh, the central government talk about energy security, food security, and supply chain security. All of them need innovation. And the front line of innovation lie in the Greater Bay Area, especially in Shenzhen. And most of those high-tech companies uh, leverage or uh, get listed in Hong Kong. And their uh, financial needs can mostly be met met through the banking system or by VCs and PEs that have a close relationship with Hong Kong. And I think for uh, the future development uh, uh, during this uh, 14th five-year plan, Hong Kong and Shanghai's connection will be strengthened and both would be positioned as a place for further financial opening. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. And after a short break, we'll take a look at the G7 Summit earlier this week. Stay with us. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The G7 summit took place earlier this week. It included intense negotiation and coordinations between the U.S. and the Europeans on some crucial strategic issues. For example, the G7 announced a 600 billion U.S. dollars global infrastructure plan during the meeting. And Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian said China welcomes all the initiatives to promote the global development. He added that China does not believe in replacing other initiatives. And according to the World Bank, if all the transport infrastructure projects under the BRI or Belt and Road Initiative are implemented by 2030, it is expected to generate about 1.6 trillion US dollars in annual revenue for the world, accounting for 1.3% of the global GDP. And in the meantime, G7 leaders also discussed new sanctions on Russia's economy and military production. The U.S. Treasury Department said the U.S., along with the U.K., Canada, and Japan, will ban imports of Russian gold. So, Xu Jie, first of all, what do you think are the impacts will this uh, you know, ban on Russia gold exports have on the global gold market? Will it have substantial results or is it just symbolic? It could be both. I think uh, it appeared to me it's quite symbolic because the, the U.S.-led sanctions 
of Western, Western allies against Russia has actually generated minimum uh, impact on the Russian economy in terms of uh, the, the Russian currency as well as the, the oil market. But the further sanction, I think, is, um, is necessarily a political propaganda agenda for the G7 uh, because the conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine is still continuing. So uh, the, the G7 have to say something about it and they have to take some uh, further action to see whether they can cause some uh, further uh, infection or damage to the Russian economy. And one of these issues of exporting the, the you know, banning the import of gold from Russia is one of the ways. Mm. And also, you know, cutting the price of oil and so and so. Mm. But um, whether it will have any meaningful impact, I think it will take some, uh, a couple of months to see whether it can, first of all, increase the price of gold in the international market or not, or whether it can actually damage the, the Russian economy to a significant extent. But my personal attitude is uh, probably no. And so then the G7 mouths to put a press cap on Russian oil and gas. So how could it be implemented? Because many analysts say they are skeptical that a press cap could be even practical since the oil and gas, they are, you know, global commodities and prices will go up and down based on the demand-supply relations. So what do you think? Uh, I think a price cap could work well with gas, but really not much on oil. Um, because oil trade are quite fungible, and that means it can easily go through a third country. Uh, now, if you look at the changing trend in the global oil market, uh, every country, uh, on average, uh, are importing more from the Middle East, but less uh, from Russia. But Russian oil are still getting to the countries that do not pose sanctions on it. Um, so if there's a price cap, that only means that Russia probably would only provide a little to uh, Europe and the U.S., but then provide the rest of the world with, uh, with a price at the market equilibrium. But mm-hmm. for gas, it's a different story, since it really depends on where the gas uh, pipeline uh, is. Um, and for Russia's main customer, uh, which are uh, the European countries, if they put a price cap, uh, Russia probably just have to go with it since they can't really export those gas to anywhere else. So, Shujie, what do you think about this uh, press cap on Russian oil and gas? Well, this is unprecedented in, in, in the commodity history. I mean, by cutting a major exporter's price uh, oil and gas, which can actually influence the international pricing, I think the distortion is obvious. And um, as, as Dan just mentioned, I mean, uh, Oil can be supplied to different countries if the so if the U.S. and the European, the G7, they cut the price, they can go to elsewhere. And uh, in terms of the gas cut price, I think the European countries have already suffered uh, from the rising prices. And if they continue to punish or sanction the, the Russian uh, gas supply, I think they're going to have some sort of uh, mutual damage rather than just mutual benefit. So again, this policy, it, it will take some time to see whether it can work. Mm. And personally, I still have very really strong doubt. Mm. And Shujie, so what do you think about the uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict's impact on the uh, global energy and food market so far? Actually, the cost of energy has increased a lot, but will it go even higher? 
Whether it will go even higher or not, it, again, it depends on the time. Uh, but the prices in Western Europe have, uh, you know, for the household have already doubled, and in some countries already tripled. Uh, the damage is already there for the consumers, and also for the for the country under concern. And if the if the conflict continue, I think there is more risk. And uncertainty, and there's possibility that the prices will continue to go. But the the, the bigger problem is the food security issue because uh, Ukraine and Russia are the major food exporter in the world, and many of the countries depend on their export. So this is a, a far more humanitarian issue than the oil problem. Mm-hmm. Well, Shu Jie, the G7 has announced a 600 billion U.S. dollars uh, global infrastructure plan that is to rival China's Belt and Road Initiative. So how do you see this plan? And how much is that about geopolitics? How much is that about providing answers to some of the crucial questions we are facing today? Well, 600 billion U.S. dollars for the G7, first of all, it's not a huge number to me, uh, to China also. Um, and secondly, you know, how this money is going to be collected and how this money is to, to be spent. And all these issues are not discussed in detail uh, in the G7. I mean, which country is to promote the money and which country is going to be uh, benefiting? I think the G7 economy nowadays, they have the internal problem. Uh, first of all, uh, the infrastructure development in, in the America in particular, is actually lagging behind uh, the economy and technological level of the country itself. In Western Europe, also the, the infrastructure upgrading is also very slow. So 600 billion US dollars just to upgrade or maintain their current uh, poor state of, of infrastructure is probably just merely enough. And it would be very difficult in to increase the rest of the world transportation infrastructure ability. And this is the problem. The second issue is that um, nowadays, in terms of the investment in the motorway, in the uh, in the high-speed trail, the the cost of the G7 country is extremely high. It's about ten times of the cost per kilometers compared to the cost in China. So, in terms of technology and cost advantage, G7 has very little to offer. And this is my concern, really. Well, we're speaking with Yao Shujie, Chang Kang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, and also Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.